0: a co-founder and lead portfolio manager at Firebird Management, which manages funds dedicated to investing in emerging market equities. Emerging markets are often a blind spot for investors of all types. Most of us have never traveled to the Far East or Eastern Europe where many of the thousands of emerging market public equities operate. I've been very lucky to travel quite a bit in Asia and the Middle East, but never to Eastern Europe, which is where Firebird focuses its investments. Harvey and I discuss his 24 years of experience evaluating emerging and frontier market countries, industries, and individual stocks. We discuss his experience buying privatization vouchers in Russia, banks in the Baltics, and how today's emerging market opportunity set compares to the past. Like so many of these conversations with investors who have earned significant excess returns, it's clear investing opportunities in emerging markets are often disguised. Finding them requires risk, hard work, discipline, and a dose of luck and timing. Please enjoy my conversation with Harvey on Emerging Market Opportunities. What is your single most memorable travel experience since the beginning of Firebird?
1: Wow, that's really, that's a really uh, tough question. I, you know, I'd have to say my first trip to Russia in January of 1994, because it was like stepping into a John le Carré novel, Uh, it was just grim, gray dirty, smelly. And I went right in the dark of winter. And I stayed at the Moskva Hotel, which um, is now the Four Seasons at the time. It was just disgusting. And I went out. They had a cafe. I couldn't eat. I couldn't find anything to eat. And the cafe, the food was inedible. There was some sort of thing, like some sort of jellied thing that looked, it was all inedible. I said, okay, there's got to be some restaurants around here. And I started walking And I couldn't find in a freezing cold. I couldn't find any store with any food. The stores that were open had no food, and there was nothing else open. And I said, "I'm going to starve now." And I turned a corner, and there was a McDonald's. The first. It was only the second McDonald's in Russia. And I've never. I, I think the only time I was so happy to go to a McDonald's was when I was probably seven years old, and they opened the first McDonald's in New York. Uh, up on the Upper West Side. I went with my mom. And uh, so God bless McDonald's. And uh, for the first few times, I went to Russia. And then I discovered there were some other restaurants. I just didn't know where they were. And, uh, and and on that same trip, we went to the voucher auction to buy privatization vouchers, which was held in an old Lenin post office, which had been turned into an, ex- uh, an exchange where they were trading like metals in the morning and then in the afternoon, they were trading privatization vouchers. And it was unheeded. Guys were running around with fur hats, exchanging these packs of vouchers. I recall it like it was yesterday. And it had the smell of opportunity. Like people say to me sometimes, oh, you start when you started out in Russia, you took, uh, it was so risky, you took such a big risk. Why did you do that? And I would say, no, you don't understand. I was absolutely sure I was going to get rich. I had no doubt. I was so confident you know, I couldn't wait to buy Russian stocks. I was so sure of it.
0: How did the settlement process work? <laughs> like, what was, the, what was the actual logistics of buying these things?
1: Well, the vouchers were kind of complicated because basically they were only supposed to be owned by um, Russians. So you, you had a Russian, you would sort of pay a Russian broker to do it on your behalf. They would tender the vouchers and then they would receive the shares with a pre-agreement to transfer the shares to you when they received them. So you were taking, yes, you were taking some risk. This is why, you know, the Templetons of the world couldn't have done it. But since you were out of, essentially out of pocket the money and were trusting a, a broker. And we we found a broker very early on that we trusted. Pretty soon Credit Suisse got in there, CSFB, and they became like the sort of uh, main trader in, in the vouchers and developed a, And they made a lot of money for themselves doing that and and for the clients.
0: Maybe you could begin by describing how you got interested in the mid-90s in emerging markets investing and in Eastern Europe and Russia specifically. How did you approach the markets? Obviously, we're staring at a huge map of a lot of the emerging markets behind you. There's a massive world, a lot of countries out there, a lot of different governance structures and political structures. How did you begin to approach that problem?
1: My original co-founder, Dan Cloud, he had a very brilliant insight which I think is is something that it remains true today about emerging markets investing. His insight was that he saw lots of people making fortunes on emerging markets, but the emerging market funds never seemed to do very well. Fidelity and Templeton, even, even Mark Mobius, his fund, his returns were never that impressive. And Dan said, you know, the reason is the guys who make a lot of money, they're doing it in their PA. These are guys who are sitting on trading desks, buying Thailand when it's at pennies. And they set up accounts at local brokerages and they get in when the insiders are buying. And the Templetons and Fidelities of the world only get in once there's already custody and even GDRs and whatever. And by then it's up 10 times already. And and the insiders are already looking to lighten up. And he said, we should do a fund where we do what the traders do on the desk, where we make it... Our fund is the PA. We won't have a PA. This is the PA. So that was the insight. And I think even today, I still think in those terms. I mean, obviously, we now have... So we started with looking for markets that were really baby markets without custody, where we had to go in and figure things out, set up custody with local brokers and so on. And after a couple of false starts at the end of 93 the Russian voucher privatizations began. And Dan knew something about Eastern Europe. He had traded Poland very successfully when it started. And he said, you know, we've got to get over to Russia to check this out. This looks like it could be something big. And Ian Haig, who is uh, another co-founder, who's still my partner now, was a Russian expert. And he, you know, they spent many, many hours talking about the Russian history and culture and language and approached it from every angle. And I was looking at it from a legal point of view, from a tax point of view. So we looked at it from every angle. And we said, you know, this is doable. This is not nearly as bad as as people think. So that was kind of the the approach was, we're going to do something here that's complicated, that is not set up for you easily. And we'll be the first foreigners in there doing this. And we're going to buy things. Oh, and then sort of buried the lead. The The most important thing was that when we looked at the valuations and the voucher privatizations, we realized that companies were being auctioned off at 1% of the value of Western comparables. So the first auction we participated in was for an oil company which had as much oil as Mobil. Mobil at the time had a $40 billion market cap, and this company had a $40 million. We it was we understood that it would, in the voucher auction, have a $40 million market cap. So we said, look, this company does not have to become as good as Mobil. It only has to become only 95% worse than Mobil, and we'll make five times our money. And sure enough, and we participated in that voucher auction, sure enough, at the peak, I think that company traded at maybe a 60% discount to mobile or to Exxon. So essentially, it went up, I don't know, 40 times to the peak. So that was the it was extreme valuations, not accessible to most investors, investing alongside of Russians who were scooping up shares, the smart Russians were scooping up shares, while your average Russian didn't understand the value of what they had been given in, in the voucher privatization. So they sold it They sold their voucher for a bottle of vodka. They never had any belief that it could be worth anything. But there were a lot of Russians who understood what it could be worth, and many of them are now billionaires.
0: Fast forwarding to today, this theme comes up over and over again in these conversations that the best returns come with a lot of the characteristics you described. Very hard, no custody, something that's happening for the first time, differentiated expertise, whether it's legal, tax, regional, whatever. Fast forwarding to today, how would you segment out The emerging markets, in terms of the regions or the types of opportunities, and maybe comparing the opportunity set today, because you see a lot just statistically that emerging markets look very cheap relative to developed international markets. What does it look like in comparison to the early days when you know one one hundredth is is a a good discount? It's not like that today. So how do how do you think about the landscape now?
1: The truth is, there are things today that are, if not one one hundredth, they're you know ninety percent discounted. They Obviously, they tend to be the countries with the biggest hair on them, such as uh, Ukraine right now in my region. And actually, in my region, we have in our fund mandate probably 35 countries. We're only active in nine. Some of those other ones are countries that are just, even after 25 years of freedom from the Soviet Union, they're still not ready. They developed down the wrong path or whatever. But you know, catching one when it changes is is very important. And over the years we've caught a, bu- a bunch of them because Russia was our first, but then we caught the Baltics. We got in early in Estonia on Hansa Bank in December 94 made 75x until we were taken out by Swedbank in 2006, I believe, 2004. Then we did Romania and Bulgaria. Then we did Kazakhstan. Then we did Georgia in 2004. And even today, we're always looking to see. I've been to Ukraine. Actually, the whole team has been to Ukraine over the last year just to see. And, you know, unfortunately, we keep trying and we keep seeing it's not ready. But So I think that anywhere in the world you go right now, you're going to find sort of a next big thing. Usually, it's one that people are not looking at. There's always a next big thing that people agree on, and I always get the feeling that it's never going to, like works. Cuba, Cuba has been the next big thing literally since 1994, and I, for the various reasons why, I always thought no one's ever going to make any money in Cuba. Vietnam was the next big thing for 20 years. It actually did, started to do well in recent years, but you had a long, long wait before it did anything.
0: What do you think of the countries that are the consensus next big thing? What are the the common variables that make people arrive at that consensus? And maybe why do you think they tend not to pan out? Or is it just a valuation story?
1: Yeah, I think it's more like they're they're focusing on maybe not exactly the right things. Like they're looking at a country that's big, like Iran. Uh, Iran has been talked about in the, the last couple of years as a next big thing. And and I know several people who've been trying to invest in Iran. But the fact, because it's a big economy, it has a lot of potential. But it's not a country that is set up for outsiders to make money. You know, I don't know a lot about it. But what I do know is that the Revolutionary Guard has a lot of control over all the levers of power, including the financial markets and uh, listed companies. And so... You have to ask yourself, is this a a game where I can play? Now, there are some markets that never worked as emerging markets, as stock markets, but people did quite well in private equity. I would say Latvia is an example. We, We had a couple of things in Latvia. We never really made any money there. People did quite well in private equity, especially in real estate. So one of the questions you have to ask is, is this going to be a stock market? And is there a place for a foreigner in this stock market, or is it all sewn up by insiders? And is there anything to buy that's any good? And so those are some of the the factors. And I think people—and also the political—I think, you know, we started—another one of Firebird's original insights was that emerging markets investors probably focused 80% on valuation and economics— and maybe 20% on politics, when it really should be more like 50 50. And so, for example, a big part of our decision to go into Russia was an analysis of the political situation. And subsequently, you know, in all the markets we've gone into, politics are a big deal. And anytime you think in emerging markets that politics has ceased to be a big deal, you can get blown out of the water, which is how it happened to people in Egypt and nobody saw that coming. All the gem funds were in Egypt, and they all got blown out of the water when Mubarak was taken down. Recently, More recently in Poland, where they went very to a very populist government that shook things up in a negative way in Hungary. So Central Europe politically became much, much tougher over the last few years, and the performance of their stock markets has been affected by that.
0: How do you think about the, maybe you have a specific checklist, but sort of the first, there's kind of three, I think about it in three ways, the economic landscape, the political landscape, and the market, capital markets infrastructure. So are there minimum conditions that you look to meet before you even consider doing deeper work on a country, maybe starting with the economic situation?
1: I don't think we have any hard and fast rules, you know, like that a country has to have X inflation and ex GDP growth or whatever, each country presents its own factors. We kind of balance them all and you know, we'll be a little bit more generous in terms of going into a country where let's say the politics is a little dicier if the valuations more than compensate you for it. So for example, even even in Ukraine, which we still don't believe in from a macro point of view and political point of view, there's a couple of stocks that we own just because they're compelling. And you can look at them and say, okay, in all the, the likely bad things that are going to happen in this country, how will this company fare? For example, if they devalue the currency, is this a problem for this company or not? And, you know, it's a fair it can be a fairly subtle analysis. But then when you have a country where the politics and everything is ticking over perfectly... Uh, and that happens, too. Like I would say, for example, uh, the Baltic states recently, you know, they have it all going just as it should be. And, you know, there will pay a little bit more for the equities. You're not going to find these dirt cheap bargains, but you'll find things that are still, you know, 40% to 50% discounted to Western Europe. So that, for me, is is a good value. And to blend it together. Oh, so to go back to one of your earlier questions, what do we do now? So yeah, we started as essentially frontier investors, because that's where we got attention. But as we've matured as a company over 20 years, we have a lot more of more developed emerging markets, and we apply a different investment approach to the more developed emerging markets than to frontier markets, which require a different approach. And you just... When we come to a frontier situation, we have to put on our different hats and different glasses and say, okay, what are we looking for here? What's the play?
0: How would you distinguish between frontier and emerging? So obviously there's MSCI type classifications, but as you think about it, what is the dividing line between those two ideas?
1: Well, like for example, countries that already have sort of normal custody, where anybody can go in and the institutions can go in, certainly if their currencies are either peg to the dollar or the euro, or they're in the euro, some of our, those are the indicia. And, you know, there are countries we call post-political, which means that they can have elections, different parties come to power, but it doesn't really change anything. So like in, for example, in Estonia, or Lithuania, they've had all these different governments in the last few years. But the path is already set in stone, they are moving more and more to EU convergence, That's it. But then you have countries where elections are still absolutely critical. So that's really more of a frontier market where you're facing the prospect of a big loss if the wrong party gets elected or if they shake things up in a bad way for the market.
0: How do you think about the access points that, we'll say, just generic Western investors have into emerging markets, things like ETFs, indexes? I'm always interested where there's places that the index methodology might be very flawed. One thing to talk about here would be, for example, state-owned enterprises, how you think about SOEs and their role in the benchmarks against which you're evaluated.
1: I think indexes are funds are even less, I buy them in the US sort of somewhat hesitantly, but they're even less appropriate for emerging markets because of what you said. The the largest cap companies are often the ones that don't build any shareholder value. So if you look at the Russian index, you know, one of the reasons it was only up five percent last year and we were up over twenty percent was because it was being dragged down by a few big SOEs that, you know, were not building value. Now I would put a caveat in there. There are times when you need to be a stock picker, and there are times when the index is going to outperform everybody else. We've had some periods where you could have just thrown a dart in in, in our region or in Russia and did just as well as we did. I think we haven't had one of those periods for about 10 years. could happen, and I am prepared to underperform and My investors by now, they've been with us for so long and we have such a long track record that they're willing to give us the benefit of the doubt when we're underperforming. And I say, look, it's becoming a bubble. All the crap is going up. I'm not going to buy bad stocks just to keep up with the market because they become the liquidity play. And, you know, we can get away with that. I think it's harder for a younger fund to do that because... People will say, "Oh, they lost it. They don't know what they're doing, and you know they don't ha- haven't had time to prove themselves through through different cycles."
0: When that happens, how much of that is just kind of like a macroeconomic play? Whether it's oil pushing up state-owned enterprises, what are the drivers of those periods where you expect to underperform?
1: Yeah, it's it's a a moment, a bull market. I've been through bull and bear markets. I can say humbly. I've been through one of the worst bear markets and one of the greatest bull markets of the last fifty years. Because I I was in the Russian bull market and I was in the bear markets of two thousand eight and nine. And you know, I would say that one of the key tasks probably the, the first piece of advice that we were ever given as emerging markets managers by a very smart guy who's still an investor of ours named George Robinson, who runs a very famous EM. Fund out of London was your job as an emerging markets manager is to know whether you're in a bull market or a bear market and act accordingly. It requires thinking about a lot. This means that if you're in a bull market, you need to go with the flow. You need to understand that things can, valuations can go to levels that you are not comfortable with, but certain stocks will emerge as the leaders of the bull market. You got to ride them. And don't get too fancy and too complicated. I believe we're in a bull market right now. It's amazing that no one has used this word in emerging markets, even though they've been going almost straight up for two years. And my market, like my Russia fund, has been up like 23 out of the last 25 months or something. And yet, We're not being inundated with new money. People don't seem to realize that we're two years into this fantastic bull market. That's what it feels like to me. And because I think I'm in that type of a market, I'm taking a slightly different approach. You know, I'm letting the winners run. The leaders that are emerging as the stocks that everybody wants, like SpareBank, let's take an example in Russia. This is a stock that has gone from 350 the GDR, a couple of years ago, to $19 today. And somebody who's ridden it from, let's say you got in at 350 and you've ridden it to 19 it's very tempting to say, okay, I don't want to be a pig. I want to <laughs> cash in. But is it over? No, I think it's halfway. And by the way, Sparebanks valuation is still attractive. It trades at something like 1.2 times book with a bank that is generating 20% return on equity in a market that feels like a bull market driven by rising oil prices. So I think that you know you have to put on a different hat. And a bear market is a different hat. This is very tough to do. And I, one of my weaknesses as a manager, in a bear market, you have to, what they say, go out back and kill all your darlings. You just got to shoot them all. Even stocks you love and you think in the long term are great companies, you got to sell them. And that is... I think the single hardest thing for a fund manager to do is to sell a long-term buy because it's going to do badly in a couple the next couple of years.
0: When it comes to portfolio construction, how do you think about risk exposures? So uh, we've talked about politics and economic conditions, things like that. Do you care at all what the broad kind of universe or benchmark looks like in terms of its weight to different countries? How do you think about that side of things?
1: I think that anybody who has a benchmark – and then says that they're benchmark unaware is <laughs> just being stupid because you know investors are not benchmark unaware. Even the word benchmark agnostic is a little strong. I would say that I'm self-denying uh, <laughs> are benchmark afraid. I'm I'm afraid <laughs> of the benchmark beating me and beating me badly and for a long time. I mean I can underperform the benchmark for a little while, but I do have an eye on the benchmark. So like some of the things that we have in our fund right now are some of the things that are big weightings in the index. And you don't want to be, for example, I don't shun SOEs. Just because they're SOEs, it doesn't mean they're bad. In fact, I would say three of the best Russian companies are state-owned enterprises, and we own all three of them. Actually, four, now that I think about it. And they all happen to be index components. So if you can enjoy a stock that's in the index and weight it, at the index level or close to it and feel good about it that's not a terrible thing because you might be wrong it could be that the stock emerges as like one of the great leaders of the market and you don't want to be forced to be in a position where you and i and i see some of my some of my peers in Russia and you know and this is probably true in other markets too they just have a philosophical hatred of a particular company because it screwed them in the past or whatever, bought out a a subsidiary at an unfair price or whatever, and they swear it off forever, even if the company completely transforms. And I try not to hold those kind of grudges for a long time because people change, companies change, and it's dangerous to be rigid in this business because you could get left behind.
0: Can we talk about the actual, the bottom up part of the process? So I think originally there's a top-down component, right? You mentioned 35 countries, you're only in nine of them. There, there are certain conditions or a story that needs to emerge. And ideally it's something that other people, it's not Cuba, right? And everyone's not looking at it. When it comes to the actual companies and industries that you're interested in, maybe walk us through that process, what you're looking for, whether or not there are industries that you focus on that's something specific to emerging markets, and how you think about that?
1: Well, in a frontier market, the first question you have to ask, you, you look at all the stocks in the stock market, if it's a new stock market, it depends on how they did privatization, if there could be a lot, or only a few. And you need to identify what the country's comparative advantage is, what, what does this country have to offer? When we went to Russia, we saw, okay, this this country is going to be one of the oil giants of the world. So oil stocks, you want to own oil stocks, you want to own for sure. And weirdly, when I think back to 1994, those were not considered to be the blue chips. The Russians themselves, they were very interested in buying shares in Gum Department Store and in Red October Chocolate Factory, because these were Things they knew, like they'd chopped at Goom. Now you could buy it. They had eaten Red October chocolates. They could they could buy that share now, and but they didn't see the oil companies. That wasn't a tangible thing that they'd interacted with. So they didn't think that those were the things to buy. Uh, incidentally, when Lloyd Benson, who was sec- Secretary of the Treasury at the time, uh, he visited Russia and. Yeltsin gave him a share of Goom Department Store and of Red October Chocolate Factory. And I think Benson should be very angry because if he had given him luke oil, it would have it went up a hundred times. And those stocks were dogs forever. So I uh, I think you have to ask what, what is the key sector? Is it a retail? Is it going to be a consumer oriented economy where you want to own things in banking retail? Is it going to be or like you take Kazakhstan as another frontier market we've invested in? It's only under 20 million people, so there are limitations on what a retailer can do, but they're a huge oil exporter, they have metals. So you'd kind of look at that. In a more developed market, You know, by then you already see what sectors have emerged, and you also want to see, there are certain sectors that are just non-investable for foreigners, anything related to defense usually is very difficult. But things that are sectors that have emerged and companies that look like public companies. Once you're talking about a more developed emerging market, those are the ones. The metrics we use, again, it depends on whether it's a frontier market or whether it's a developed market. In a frontier market where the companies don't really have, let's say, great earnings yet, you're looking for market share. You use comparables a lot. Like if this was a Western telecom what would it be worth what's their market share those kind of questions in a more developed emerging market you can go on to you know price to book and pe and all the the normal things but i would say that there's been a big transition in emerging markets in the last 10 years and particularly in the last 5 years away from headline numbers and to fundamental value creation which is now What really separates the winners from the losers in the stock market. So if you look at, there are companies in in my market in Russia that look very cheap on a headline basis, because let's say they have a 3PE, but the free cash flow is non-existent because the capex is inefficient and a lot of stealing and nothing ever winds up going. And the only way they can pay dividends is by borrowing and paying dividends. So- but then you have companies that generate tremendous amount of free cash flow and share it with investors through dividends and buybacks. Those are the companies that are outperforming, that have helped us a lot in the last few years to outperform. And I think that this is a result of lots of emerging market company managers having – it's a new generation of people who were trained in Western business schools or at least. They're familiar with Western practices and globalization has had this effect on these countries of kind of the mantra of value creation is much more widely accepted, at least in my region. I can't speak so much to the rest of the world, but I believe that in most of Asia ex-China, that's the mantra. China, I think, is a different animal and I think people who invest there need to be experts.
0: How do you think about dividends? Do you care about that cash flow stream? You mentioned borrowing to pay dividends. Maybe that's a bad thing. How do you think about return of cash directly to shareholders?
1: We're dividend hungry. We love it. Uh, at the same time, you know, if a company has worthy investment projects, I'm more than happy for them to well, it's the same thing that Warren Buffett always says. Like, you know, I, I don't want the dividends. I don't want the. Sh- I don't want the cash back. I want you to invest it. And that's easy for him to say in the United States, where the investments are smart. Well, let's put that this way: where his his companies tend to make smart investments. In our part of the world, a lot of that money was stolen, and so shareholders like to see the cash on the barrel head Means this is real profits. I can touch it, but. My last meetings, uh, I was in Russia uh, 10 days ago, and I had some meetings. And they were speaking my language. They were saying, look, we, our new po- the board has come up with a new policy. I met with a Russian steel company. This is amazing. They were the first company to institute a quarterly dividend. They have a new dividend policy. They're going to dividend out their entire free cash flow up to 0.3 times debt to EBITDA. And if debt is below 0.3 times EBITDA, they'll pay above 100% of free cash flow to get it to that level. Then they complained to me that other Russian steel companies that are public were copying them, their dividend policy, and doing the same thing. When I left, I sort of said, oh, my God, can it be Russian steel companies are competing to see who has the best corporate governance, (laughs) considering where it was 20 years ago, where they would shoot you for even asking, you know, where did the money go? So, I think it's they're speaking my language, but I, I do love dividends and, you know, our fund, well, the the market uh has the Eastern MSCI Eastern Europe right now has a 4% dividend yield, which tells me that we're not toppy. That's a sign. It's never the PE, the market PE is 10. I've seen it at 10 before, but not with a 4% dividend yield. I think it was probably at 10 let's say go back to 2005 2006 it was probably 10 but the dividend yield was probably 2% if that so it's a whole different ball game in my part of the world and i would imagine it is the same everywhere in emerging markets Again, ex-China. <laughs> China is a different story.
0: On the way in, I was reading, uh, I can't remember the name of the book, but there was an Orwell quote in the book, something to the effect of, whatever has the momentum now seems invincible. And the S&P 500 has sort of been invincible here in the U.S. It's kind of on, on a trailing 10-year basis crushed just about every other major investable index. You also, I think, I think, Firebird manages some equities, U.S. value equities. How do you think about the comparison, the opportunity comparison between U.S. equities, maybe U.S. value equities, and emerging markets today?
1: I think they have one thing in common, which makes me positive on both, which is that equities still offer a much more attractive return than the relevant fixed income instrument. So, for example... In uh, the United States, it's true. Let's say that the S&P is trading at 23, whatever it is. So your earnings yield is over 4%. The 10-year is 2.7. So e- even after that move, it's 2.7. And people are getting excited. You know, Texan, uh, the, look at the dividend yield. People forget that this is only a recent phenomenon, that the earnings yield
0: on Could the s and was yeah.
1: higher than the bond yield. When I started investing in 1992, I read The Intelligent Investor, and Graham says in there that you know that the US market is a good buy when the earnings yield is at least two times the bond yield. And if it isn't, you should just put in like 25% into equities. So I said, okay. I put 25% of my money into equities, and I said, okay, I'll wait until Graham's conditions are, are in place, and then I'll get fully invested it didn't happen until 2009. That's when it finally was. And in fact, at that time, it was three times the earnings yield. I think by by 2010, the earnings yield was three times the bond yield. And I said, boy, I should be buying U.S. equities. And I I did. I only wish i had gotten, you know, fully invested like, you know, I should have. But anyway, so, okay, it's not as attractive now. And but it's still attractive. And so, any time, of course, I'm having these arguments with people all the time when I say that the U.S. market is still good, and they say, "Well, that's only because the treasuries are too cheap." And I say, you know, if you're going to argue on that you know the fair value of of the ten year and no one else does, you know, that's a loser's argument. There is a lot of reasons why the ten year trades where it does. By the way. So then I asked a friend of mine who's an expert on fixed income, you know, what do you think? Is it being pushed up by the Fed? He said, of course it is. If the Fed was not involved in the bond market, yields would be much higher. But they are. <laughs> and they will be for a long, long, long time. There's a, like a 10-year process of getting the Fed out. So where's the problem? So obviously, if the 10-year does keep going up, the yield keeps going up, at some point, it does start to look like... US equities are now facing very steep competition, it's going to be a factor. And I'll adjust my portfolio accordingly.
0: So you mentioned that you try to run this place like it's your PA, which I think is what everyone would want out of their asset manager. Back to that question. So US equities relative to fixed income, I understand the argument. What about US equities relative to emerging market equities kind of versus that same differential across your 20 plus year history?
1: I would say that we're now in a period where EM equities should outperform developed market equities after 10 years of of the opposite. To use a cliche, what's becoming a cliche, we have coordinated global growth for the first time since 2007.
0: Can you say more about what you mean by that, by coordinated global growth? Well, I
1: mean, the U.S. is growing. Europe is growing even more than the U.S., GDP-wise. China's growing. And not only is China growing, but after carrying much of the global economy on their backs for a few years... Now they're growing more on the basis of exports again because Europe is their biggest export market and it's growing again and people are buying stuff. When I saw the car sales in Europe last year were the highest they'd been in 10 years. That's not fake. I mean, that's not fake news. That's a real factor that affects everything. And emerging markets are growing. So, I mean, outside of China, the others, outside of China, everybody's growing. So that reminds me of the period from 2000 and. 3 until 2007 when 4% global growth was happening and it was a great time to be in cyclicals and resource stocks and in emerging market equities. Then we went into a, a period of very serious retrenchment with a couple of false starts and then it sank down again. So you had 10 years and during a period like that obviously uh, developed markets are going to perform better, and tech and FANG and all that. People are not leveraged to global growth quite as much. But I think the leadership is switched again. And I think that money has barely even started to flow into emerging markets yet. I was talking to a fund of funds manager who's setting up an emerging market fund of funds and I asked him, when do you think we'll start to see some inflows? And he said, one year after the U.S. market, that the EMs start outperforming the U.S., people start looking at them. Then it'll take another year for them to figure out what they want to do. So two years after, that's when money will start to flow in. So they started out performing probably about a year ago. So we're only a year into it. We need another year. And then I would say first quarter of 2019, we'll start to see more significant inflows to the asset class. So we haven't really seen much in the way of inflows to my funds, despite two years of extremely good performance.
0: Can you talk a bit about the investor types that allocate to emerging markets? So you mentioned a lot of your investors have been with you a long time. I always think about it from kind of the the basic individual that makes their own decisions all the way up to, you know, the very slow to move massive sovereign wealth funds or something like this. When you think about potential LP investors in your strategies, how do you kind of segment them? And and do you believe that everyone's just kind of performance-based investing? Or are there others that look to emerging markets to fill some other specific need in their portfolio?
1: It's a combination. I mean, we have... Our largest investor is a sovereign, quasi-sovereign wealth fund. It's an, a very large asset manager, and we fill a need. They have a, a huge portfolio, and they were looking for a particular type of emerging market equity investor. We fit the bill, and we have them, and we have some other institutional types. But I would say that you know the more typical investor for us is a high net worth individual, somebody with a million dollars or two million dollars who feels uncomfortable, as they should, sticking that into an ETF, or looks at Templeton Fidelity and doesn't like what they see in terms of performance and track record and says, there's got to be something better, and I'm willing I'm willing to pay higher fees and for, for expertise. So that's the kind of investor we have. And you know, it's interesting, because come full circle, when we started out in the 90s, our investor base was exactly like that. It was in high net worth individuals, and then some very sophisticated institutional investors who we filled a need. Then for ten, for 5 years we went through this amazing boom in fund of funds which transformed the whole hedge fund industry and created unbelievable bubbles all over the place. Everything a lot of that was pushed up by these fund of funds and most of them are gone. So we're back to the same type of marketing we did in the 90s again. And for me, like my dream investor is like a kind of a older, slightly stubborn person who's made money either investing or with a business and looks at, is very skeptical, doesn't get fooled by slick sales pitches. And that's the kind of person, and invest for the long term, and that's the kind of person who, when you're down, they will add more. If they're convinced that your strategy is right and you know what you're doing, They'll add more and not run for the hills the minute there is a twinge. Uh, So those are my kind of favorite investors. And I've had some of them, people like that for 20 years. Unfortunately, some of them are, the funds are going to outlive some of our favorite investors, which, and that's another interesting thing is to see whether the next generation has been adequately prepared what to do and how to invest. And uh, sadly, I find that the answer is usually no.
0: Can you talk about the value of travel in the process itself? See, you you mentioned that you were just in Russia. It sounds like the team, someone from the team is basically traveling at all times. Maybe tell a story or two about why you do that and why that's valuable versus just, you know, looking at financial statements and, and information.
1: First of all, I enjoy it. For me, going on the road is still extremely fun. Here in New York, I'm an obscure nobody. When I go to Russia or Georgia, I'm a hero, and everybody wants to wine and dine me and and so on. But it's not an ego boost. I just enjoy it, and it's interesting. And when you go to a—I was in Georgia a couple months ago visiting with Bank of Georgia, which is one of our big investments. And they have a subsidiary that's building the first hospital and clinic chain in Georgia. And it was amazing. I visited—they showed us this one hospital. They said, this is the first neonatal clinic— in Georgia. This is the first sophisticated CT machine in Georgia in, in Tbilisi. And I really felt like we were part of something, you know, and then we went to a hydropower plant that they're building. And I, I you know, you see, you touch what, what it is you're participating in. It makes you feel good. And of course, I feel like because I've been doing this so long, I have a fairly good gut for the management. So if I see really good management, last summer, I met with Luke Oil, which is an oil company in Russia, and it was a new IR guy they had hired. And he was really impressive. Luke Oil always had some difficulties with investor relations, never had the right person. And I said, okay, this guy is awesome. I loved what he was telling me. He told me some things that, while not inside information, were very insightful as to some things that were going to happen with luke oil that have happened, like the decision to institute a buyback. So I felt like it increased dramatically my confidence in that position that we held, and we added to it. So you get these insights, meeting with people, and the opposite too. Like you, you visit a company. I was just in Russia. I visited a few retailers, and I visited a retailer called Magnet. And I first visited their stores two years ago, This was the market darling two years ago. And on paper, it looked really good. But if you actually visited the stores, you saw that they were letting them go to pot. They were dirty. There was inventory sitting all over the the selling space. And then I went to their competitor, X5, which was introducing a sparkling new store format and only a little bit more expensive. And I said, you know, X5 is going to eat Magneet for lunch. And we sold our Magneet, which had a huge gain on. And at that time was, I think it was the third largest holding in the in the uh, ETF and switched into X5. And sure enough, X5 has outperformed by a couple of hundred percent. So then I went just recently, but they said, no, no, Magneet, it's still good. They've just reformatted their stores. They're going to be just as good as X5's. This is the story that the brokers or t- the analysts are telling while presumably they're still trying to offload magnet chairs onto people. And I went to the magnet store last a week, and, and, and it was still, even the refurbished store was still no good. It was dirty, there were empty shelves, because they have this just-in-time kind of logistical strategy, which is not working, there's empty shelves, and there was still inventory sitting all over the floor in carts. And then I went to this a couple of other stores that were sparkling and new and filled with goods and as they can't they just can't compete so these are the things you see when you go so even in the more developed emerging markets that have plenty of research coverage you have to see with your own eyes sometimes frontier markets without a question you have to go you can't develop an opinion about a frontier market unless you spend some time there get to know the people the business culture Get a feeling for what's going on there. And even then, you don't always get it right. You know, we've had some huge mistakes over the years thinking that a, mar- a country was going to be great and then it went in a different direction. And sometimes you can, you have to adapt to that.
0: What do you think the biggest mistakes are that? emerging markets investors make? And and you could interpret that two ways. One would be, you know, your direct competition, other active managers in emerging markets, but also just allocators to the asset class.
1: The managers that I've seen over the years fail, usually fail for a couple of reasons. I mean, one is that they get arrogant and they forget that they're outsiders and they try to do things that are too funky, uh, get involved in sort of, I saw one, asset manager put like his in, of a portfolio equity fund put almost his whole fund into a private company and then it got he got screwed and and uh wound up losing the fund uh, i've seen a lot of people just get suckered into very large illiquid things so matching and I learned a lesson myself in in two thousand and eight about matching liquidity to the terms of your fund. And sort of style drift, I would say, is is a big risk in emerging markets, because people think that they can do anything. They think that they're, just because they had some good early returns in an emerging market, they think that they can, they now master that market. They can do private equity there. They can do derivatives. They can do shorting and become very overconfident. So I think that's one of the biggest mistakes and liquidity mismatching and just lack of patience. I mean literally I was in a almost ten year bear market in, in in emerging markets and then it turned bullish about two years ago. But I had to go from, you know, two thousand and eight to two thousand and sixteen, underwater, no performance fees, you know, investors not particularly thrilled, and we survived in that environment by very, very disciplined bottom-up stock picking, dividend investing for dividends, and, and we we were able to, you know, kind of do okay relative to the markets. But it was we knew that in that environment, we just have to wait until things got good again. Emerging markets is very streaky. You have to be around when the good times happen. In terms of investors, they make the same mistake in emerging markets they make everywhere else, which is buy at the top, sell at the bottom. I am begging. I have a few investors who are either they put like a toehold in my fund, and they said they'll give you more later, or they're looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And I'm saying, please, don't wait until we're 20% from the top of the next bull market and then give me all the money. Don't be like that, please. And most people, that's what they're going to do. For me, if that's the way it plays out, for me, the for us, the, the goal is going to be how to handle what do you do with inflows when you're not confident about the valuations and you feel you're near the top. And sell at the bottom. You know, I had a couple of big investors. I would say several of my biggest investors pulled the rip cord at the exactly worst time at the end of 2015, just as oil was getting ready to bottom out, just as the global economy was turning, just as Europe was starting to, to grow again. They just gave up and sold at the bottom of that particular cycle. So Patience, long term, and I would say uh, look for managers. And another thing is, and here, I, you know, this is sort of self serving, but I believe that emerging markets investing is a very specialized skill, much like distressed debt investing. I've been doing it for 23, 24 years. I think I learned something over that time. And so, much like the top, when I invest with other fund managers, If I invest with distressed debt, I wouldn't buy a distressed debt mutual fund or ETF. I find the best manager, and give them money, and I'm more than happy to pay them two and twenty, if they'll have me. Because a lot of times they're closed, you know, and I have to ask to please. But with emerging markets, everybody's attitude is like, oh, I can just buy the ETF. Well, good luck, because look at the look at the historical performance of not only the ETFs but the mutual funds against the top ranked. EM managers, hedge fund managers, who net of the performance fees and what they've delivered. So I think we're more like distressed debt than we are like, say, U.S. equities. But that's self-serving, of course.
0: You mentioned the smell of opportunity in Russia in the mid-90s. What comes closest in today's market to giving you that same sense?
1: There's nothing that jumps out at me right at the moment that I feel like is a screaming buy that I would be so excited to just be able to buy some. I think like the whole thing looks pretty looks pretty good. Uh, it reminds me of where we were in about 2005 when we were only a couple of years into that bull market. I hope this one progresses in a more measured way and doesn't turn into a crazy. I think it will because people were burned last time. So I, I don't really see anything that in the public equities that I think is a absolute screaming, screaming by. I mean, I you know, I do some things outside of my funds with my personal money that I think are interesting. I invested in a, uh, a ride-sharing service called Via here in New York. I think it's quite interesting. I think that's a model that could be very big around the world.
0: What makes that distinct from, you know, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world?
1: So Via is a private company. That runs these like vans in in big cities. They're in New York and a couple few other cities, and it's really an alternative to public transportation. They're like they're like an alternative to buses, and they have this incredibly sophisticated algorithm that matches people up on on routes, and they even use some sort of AI to make sure that the route that it takes is also psychologically attractive to you. So, for example, they pick up people in a line all over the Upper West Side, and then they take them to their offices. But they don't take you out of the way, even if it would be shorter, because they know that you're going to believe that they took you out of the way and it made it longer, even if it made it shorter. So it's an unbelievably brilliant algorithm developed by these two former Israeli military guys. and uh, So I was lucky enough to be able to put some money into that. And, And a round along with Mercedes, which took half the round, So little things like that. I bought some gold coins recently.
0: Interesting. What was was the thinking there?
1: I think that gold, I don't want to get involved in a discussion on cryptocurrencies, but (laughs) let's put it this way. I don't think-
0: You're talking to the wrong guy.
1: (laughs) I, I don't think they're going to replace gold. I think that there's a, I saw Cameron Winklevoss on TV claiming that cryptocurrencies were the new gold. And I could see, you know, I told you, I've spent a lot of time analyzing people to see their level of truthfulness. And I saw in his eyes that I don't think he really believed what he was saying himself. They're not going to replace gold. Gold has been around, you know, an ounce of gold buys you the same amount of wheat now as it did in Moses' time. I don't know if you will be able to say the same thing about Bitcoin. But whatever. The point is that gold has been... My point is not that cryptocurrencies went up, is that gold went down partially because of them. So while I'm not a gold bug, I felt that having some gold coins... Plus, I used to be a coin collector when I was a kid. So the idea of buying some incredibly cool coins, which also had investment value and, uh, you know, that was just a little personal diversification. What was your
0: all-time favorite coin in your collection?
1: I don't know. Probably some... I I remember buying a, a mint set of, you know, with Kennedy half dollars in the 60s when I was a little kid. And, you know, Kennedy was... So I still... I still... I remember exactly what it looked like. It had these real shiny... Kennedy half dollar, and then the rest of the U.S. coins. And, uh, but that started me as, an, as a fund manager. I mean, I think that if you scratch a lot of the top fund managers, you'll find a coin collector, a stamp collector, a collector. Because, I mean, it's the, same, it's the same impulse, isn't it? I mean, it's, we all love to consume. But there are some of us that our favorite kind of consumption is consumption that is also feels like investment. So when you buy coins as a kid, you're buying something with your money, but it's something you know is going to have value over, or you believe is going to have value over time. And I was one of those kids. There are other kids who spend all their money on you know, cotton candy and this and that, and I was always the other kind of kid. And I would say that this is also why so many fund managers are art collectors like I am, because I don't get any particular pleasure in you know, spending a lot of money on you know particular kinds of travel or this or that, but when I buy art, I have this feeling of both consuming and investing at the same time. and so I think most of most fund managers who are who are good, they have that gene for long term accumulation of wealth by acquiring stuff. Hmm. Sounds like a good interview (laughs) question for people. (laughs) Did did you have a stamp collection as a kid? You'd be surprised. I bet you... Why are so many fund managers art collectors? I think it's... uh, These are probably the kids who, when they were had baseball card collections and and coins and stamps and and everything else. So I have
0: two closing questions for you quickly. The first is, if you were to choose one country, you could only travel to one of the the various countries you spent time in, purely for enjoyment. And that could be investment enjoyment, it could be pure travel. Uh, What country would that be?
1: I would say that right now, of the places I invest in, the place I would recommend going to the most is Moscow. Because the city has really transformed in the last five years. So that it's, you know, the hotels are great. There's a lot of great Russian food, like Russian cuisine, but with a contemporary spin on it. Not jellies? <laughs> no, just amazing farm-to-table Russian food all over the city. The city looks good. There's there's a Uber and Yandex taxi you can get around. There's, uh, everything works. Um, and it's fascinating. There's a lot of museums to see. Uh, so it's just a, a fascinating place to visit, tack on St. Petersburg, and uh, you, you know I think that's a fantastic vacation.
0: My closing question for everybody is to ask what the kindest thing that anyone's ever done for you is.
1: Other than a family member, I don't know. I think that I would give a shout out to my old law firm, Wachtel Lipton. They worked me very hard, but they always treated me like, they, they treated their associates like real important people, and they compensated us fairly. And then when I left, they were extremely nice to me. I then went on to write a novel, which was published in 1995, which which was about a, a law firm that some said was like Wachtell Lipton, and it wasn't a particularly favorable portrayal of the legal profession, I have to say. And, you know, Marty Lipton wrote me a, a note saying how much he liked the novel, and I thought that was just a class move he's he's really somebody who stands out to me as a class act
0: fantastic well this has been a really really interesting conversation thank you so much for your time thank you hey everyone patrick here again to find more episodes of invest like the best go to investorfieldguide.com forward slash podcast if you're a book lover you can also sign up for my book club at investorfieldguide.com forward slash book club